Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the interesting cases throughout this whole coronavirus pandemic has been the state of Florida. Florida has begun to reopen the state for business as they were able to dodge some of the worst of coronavirus. Despite not issuing early statewide stay-at-home orders, many of the decisions were left to local authorities on whether to shut down. They had a lesser population density and warmer climate, and those could have played a role in fewer infections. But one other big factor, there was an attitude change in Florida residents themselves. Smartphone data shows that by mid-March, before stay-at-home orders were put in place, residents had already begun to hunker down and limit movements. Still, with a larger population of people over 65, there's fears of a second wave of infections. For more on how Florida made it this far and whether they made smart decisions or were just lucky, we spoke to Ariane Campo-Flores, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. So what the governor in Florida was widely and persistently criticized for not taking a more uniform approach to locking down the state and implementing a stay-at-home order. What he did instead was to defer to local governments to make those decisions for themselves. He did do some things that have been praised as early actions, um, in particular how he moved relatively quickly to cut off access to nursing homes and assisted living facilities and to really lock those down because of how vulnerable that population is. But in terms of the stay-at-home orders for residents at large, that was really up to the locals. And what ended up happening is that in particularly hard-hit areas like Miami Beach, Miami-Dade County, Broward County, Fort Lauderdale area, those areas did move relatively quickly. Florida became very famous for having these pictures of partying spring breakers, right. which were very unsettling to large parts of the country. What happened is that that created a lot of alarm among local officials. And so that was relatively quickly shut down within days after that. So this critical period of about March 15th to March 22nd was really a, a clampdown. But that was done based on the actions of what local and county officials were doing. That was not something that was being directed or pushed by the governor. So I think in that respect, sort of fortunate that that turned out the way that it did. One of the things that a lot of people point to is population density. When we're talking about places like New York, everybody is packed in really tight and you just really have no option but to be around people. In Florida, it's such a big state, it varies a lot. you know. And as you mentioned, some of the local mayors and some of the more populous areas, they sh moved quickly to shut things down. But in other areas of the state where you didn't really need it, the governor hadn't put any stay-at-home orders in place. So they were able to kind of operate a little more freely. You referred to like a blanket stay-at-home order as a blunt instrument. Why would you put in place the same thing in, say, Miami Beach that you would put in place in one of the many more rural counties that have been much less affected by this? And so density is an issue. It's something that public health experts have raised as another potential factor that has played a role in this. Florida has dense pockets. It has some dense urban cores, but it's largely a state that has a lot of sprawl. It has a lot of 
suburban tract housing and very limited public transit. And so those were factors that, at least in this instance, seem to have helped out the state. One of the other major factors that a lot of people point to is this change in behavior by Floridians. Uh, there, People are looking at smartphone data to see how people were moving, if they were staying home. And they said that by mid-March, and this was obviously before the statewide stay-at-home order was put in place, people were already starting to hunker down. And we keep talking about the senior population there. It's about 20% of Florida. I mean, maybe they just started seeing everything happening across the country and knowing that they were in the most at-risk category, and then they just started staying home. So even the people of Florida started doing this on their own. That's one of the most interesting aspects of this and reporting on it, which is that even though the governor took weeks beyond when people thought he should have to put in a stay-at-home order, even in the absence of that, and Floridians in general really started hunkering down in mid-March. Right around March 15th is when you start to see a really significant decline in mobility as measured by locations of cell phones. And so what that suggests is that people were taking it upon themselves. They were alarmed enough by what they were seeing in news reports. And this was a period in which you were seeing news reports of just the horrible situation in Italy, you know, military trucks ferrying coffins, doctors having to make really difficult decisions about rationing care. That was getting a lot of coverage. There was also it was also a period in which there was growing alarm about what was going to happen in New York City. And Florida is a place that has a lot of connections to New York. And so that seems to have generated this response in people to just whatever officials were saying, they were going to take it upon themselves anyway to lock down. You know, one of the interesting things I noted in your report that it was that the state contacted researchers at the University of Florida Emerging Pathogens Institute to get help on what to do when there were still very few cases. And they wrote a one-page assessment that said, shut everything down now or you're going to start seeing huge community spread and deaths. But the uh, state officials said, you know what, we're tracing everything. We're not finding a lot of community spread. And that's why DeSantis, the governor there, took a more targeted approach to just the hard-hit counties and everything else kind of followed. This is what we're kind of seeing from all of this. So even despite some early recommendations to start shutting things down, he resisted still. And there was concern among these public health experts, these epidemiologists, these modelers, deep concern that the state was not taking this seriously enough. And so when the state reached out to ask for some guidance from this group, and this is an institute at the University of Florida that specializes in this, the researchers made clear that, in their opinion, the state really needed to act quickly and aggressively to cancel mass gatherings, get people at home, cancel schools, etc., and really implement aggressive social distancing. And they warned that, if not, there was the likelihood of more than 1,000 deaths over the course of the following month. And that is actually what happened. Deaths have now topped 1,300. And the state certainly has come out much better than a lot of the early modeling was projecting and a lot better than a lot of people feared. But, you know, that is still a significant number of people. Right. But, uh, yeah, as you noted, the governor and they felt the approach that they were taking was the one that made the most sense. And so they essentially did not take action in response to these warnings that were raised by these experts. Testing is still a huge issue. I think experts say there needs to be 32,000 tests a day to detect and respond to any flare-ups that might be occurring. Where is Florida at with testing? According to one official who was addressing this, 
recently. He said it basically needs to double in terms of capacity. And so the state is trying very hard to do that. This is a very challenging environment for any state, any governor. There's just a deep shortage of, of kits and of supplies. But they have been steadily ramping that up. And so you need to have that infrastructure in place to be able to quickly detect any new outbreaks or flare-ups and be able to then do contact tracing and track down and isolate the folks that infected people may have had contact with. So some people believe that it is too early to be talking about a reopening of the state until you have that firmly in place. But what the state is doing is going ahead with a very gradual reopening. And Governor DeSantis has been more cautious about it than some other governors in the South have been, for instance, in in Georgia and other states where they're moving more quickly to open things up. In Florida, it is going very slowly. This first phase is a gradual reopening of retail stores and restaurants outside of South Florida. So the South Florida counties are carved out of this and they need to remain under these stay-at-home orders. There will be almost undoubtedly new infections that are going to crop up and the state needs to very effectively clamp down on those. And so there's understandable concern about whether the state is going to really be able to avoid a potentially more lethal second wave. Arian Campo-Flores, reporter with The Wall Street Journal based in Miami. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing. It was my pleasure. Finally for this week, a crazy story about how an ex-Green Beret led a failed attempt to oust Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro. The original plan was to have some 300 armed volunteers sneak into Venezuela, raid military bases, and capture Maduro. That plan never happened, and it seemed like everything went wrong. Maduro on Monday said that two U.S. citizens were among 13 people captured by the authorities in connection with what they called a failed plot to invade the country and topple his government. A man named Jordan Goudreau, owner of Silvercore USA, reportedly hatched a plan with Venezuelan opposition officials. There's still much to be known, but there's no indication that any U.S. officials sponsored Goudreau's actions. For more on how this whole plot fell apart, we'll speak to Karen DeYoung, senior national security correspondent at The Washington Post. I think it's important to say there's a lot we still don't know, and there are a whole lot of conflicting accounts. As best we can tell to this point, this is a guy named Jordan Goudreau, who is a a former Green Beret who in 2018 formed a what he called a strategic security company based in Florida. He eventually made contact with representatives in Miami of the president of Venezuela that is recognized by the United States and many other countries in Latin America, Juan Guaido, and said that he was prepared to launch an invasion training and uh, supervising defected Venezuelan military personnel who now live in Colombia. And initially, they agreed to this plan, and uh, the, the goal of it was they were going to kidnap Nicolas Maduro, who is the president of Venezuela, and they were going to put him on a plane and bring him to the United States, He was indicted earlier this year for narco-trafficking, and there's a $15 million bounty on his head. As I say, the opposition people initially agreed to this, gradually became sort of concerned, and by their account, by kind of mid-fall of last year, basically opted out of the whole thing. Apparently, Goudreau, the Green Beret, went ahead 
with organizing uh, what eventually ended up to be only about 60 former Colombian soldiers. He enlisted two other former U.S. Special Operations soldiers to go down there and train these guys. There was an apparent arms shipment to another exile guy who lived in Colombia that was intercepted. That guy was arrested. He had also been indicted for narco-trafficking, and he was sent to the United States where he's now in prison. This small group of Venezuelans apparently took off from northern Colombia in two boats on Sunday. An initial boat that landed was intercepted on the Venezuelan coast where most of the people in it were killed. A second boat, the one carrying the two Americans, arrived on Monday morning where they were met with Venezuelan security forces. They were arrested. President Maduro had a news conference yesterday, showed a video of one of them who said, yeah, this was the plan. This is how much I was paid. This is what I did. This is who was in charge. The Trump administration basically says it knows nothing about any of this. And that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. Even the Americans that were captured, they showed supposedly their passports. I guess they had their passports on them for some type of uh, secret military action. I don't know if you'd be carrying your passport for something like that. But there's varying degrees, as you mentioned, with what happened and who was on board with what part of the plan. But it did seem that things were moving. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, Goudreau had people there training some of these Venezuelans to do these operations. So there was this kind of plan in motion. There was, but I think that anyone who, as people have found out about it, you know, there was just no hope it was going to succeed. And in fact, there were lots of indications that Maduro and his people had known about this for some time. And clearly they were standing there on this rocky shore, not very far from the international airport outside of Caracas waiting for them when they pulled up. So it couldn't have been much of a secret. And I think with 60 guys who had gotten a couple months of training from two Americans, um, and we don't really know what kind of weaponry they had. The Venezuelan government has shown all kinds of what they say are captured weapons, but we don't have any way really of knowing that. I think the likelihood that this was going to accomplish much of anything is pretty slim. You know, nobody does these types of things without money being involved, usually. What do we know about that part of it? Because from reading your report, it seemed like Guaido and the opposition were exploring options on maybe how to topple Maduro there. And they it seemed like they had toyed with this idea of using some type of military action. And they were asking people and, you know, some people were asking for as much as $500 million for a job. And it seemed that Jordan Goudreau settled on a much lower number, but was any money officially handed over, anything like that? Well, according to both Goudreau and the Venezuelan group, the opposition group in Miami, he was given $50,000 for expenses. But as I say, they they fell out before any real money kind of changed hands. And and the the money that he was going to be paid with, he he eventually expected to get something in excess of $200 million dollars supposedly, he says, uh, and this was going to be from profits from the Venezuelan oil industry, which various oil companies were going to go down and take over uh, and get contracts for after Maduro was overthrown and when 
a new government supposedly headed by Guaido, who now says he knows nothing about any of this, uh, took over. And so it was kind of a contingency fee. Um, and so, uh, but again, everybody who you would think had to have known about this is kind of running in the other direction, saying they knew nothing about it, including the Trump administration. And, there, you know, a group of senior Democratic senators um, late yesterday sent a letter to Secretary of State Pompeo, Attorney General Barr, and uh, Rich Grinnell, who's the acting director of national intelligence, um, asking a whole bunch of questions about what the administration knew about this, um, if they knew anything, did they take any steps to prevent it, uh, isn't this illegal, what Goudreau was doing um, under all kinds of U.S. and international law, um, what are they doing to investigate him, um, what's the intelligence assessment of whether whether the Guaido um, kind of government in exile recognized by the United States knew about this, and, and as you say, who paid for it? Um, I think there have been some reports that the Justice Department has launched an investigation of Kudrow, uh, but again, it's all part of the murky uh, circumstances surrounding this, which kind of sounds like a Keystone Cops operation, um, but but again, it went on for long enough and actually resulted in an, in a number of deaths of these some of these guys who landed there. That it, it seems really hard um, to believe that no one in the U.S. government, which is very interested in what happens in Venezuela and very close to the opposition, had any idea that any of this was going on. And Jordan Goudreau has been pretty vocal about what was going on. I mean, he's you know spoken to a lot of people. Um, you know, I think he I, I saw somewhere he said that he's fighting an information war about this. I mean, he's maintaining that this was all above. I mean, not necessarily above board, but <laughs> that he was talking to, you know, opposition members. He had clearance from Guaido. Uh, there might have been some type of U.S. military uh, involvement or something. So he's been kind of saying a lot of this stuff. Yeah, again, um, you know, it, it, as often happens in situations like this, there are lots of actors. There are lots of sort of Rambo types. Um it's hard to know at this point what to believe about what, what Goudreau is saying. I mean, it's so crazy. So is Goudreau in, in custody somewhere in the United States? What is the status of him right now? Uh, well, he supposedly is in hiding. I believe he is in the United States. I don't know that for sure, but uh, he's certainly talking on the phone and texting not only to us and but to other reporters too. So I don't know who else he's talking to and I don't know who's looking for him. Wow. What a crazy story. And as you mentioned at the beginning, a lot more that we still need to know about this, obviously with the sensitive nature of what's going on in Venezuela as well. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more. Karen DeYoung, senior national security correspondent at the Washington post. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.